I want to start this morning with a little bit of a disclaimer. I've got to correct something I said a couple of weeks ago. I got my facts mixed up. We were talking about the significance of the Euphrates River in the history of the world and how right there in the plains of Shinar on the banks of the Euphrates is where men began to turn again against God after the flood. And out of that, Nimrod, the great mighty hunter before the Lord, had a kingdom and that's where Babel and the Tower of Babel uh, was constructed. That's where God introduced confusion to scatter people around the world. And we talked about how Babylonian paganism or false religion goes back to Babylon, goes back to Nimrod. I talked about his mother and his father. And I got a few of my facts mixed up, so I just wanted to correct that. I can't stand saying something that's not accurate and then finding out later, I feel like I need to correct it. Nimrod's father was a man named Cush. Uh, Cush was one of the um, grandsons of Noah. And from Cush came ancient Ethiopia and places uh, in uh, the Near East. And Cush, according to ancient tradition, some of it Jewish, some of it uh, pagan histories that trace the, the religions back, was the one after the flood just one generation removed who began to lead people away from God. Okay? And some say that references to Bel in pagan literature, B-E-L, is a reference to Cush. Cush's problem was he married a very wicked woman, uh, one of his cousins, uh, whose name was Semiramis, and she led him astray. In the process of time, Cush died and their son Nimrod inherited that power and saw the value of uh, propagating this false religion for the sake of power. It was Nimrod that grew up and put himself in the position to formally turn men away from God and to set himself up as an authority that went against the authority God had laid down through Noah. So, Shem got wind of this, and Shem is the one that had Nimrod killed, not Cush. Cush died naturally, but Nimrod was killed. Well, Nimrod grew up, his father apparently died, and he married his mother. Okay, His wicked mother, Semiramis, married him when he grew up. And so it was a wicked thing. They began to organize false religion, and it's where the sacrifice of babies goes back to that the sacrifice of babies for the sake of power and uh, homage to devils goes back to Nimrod and his mother. And so those, a lot of what we see in Roman Catholicism and a lot of false religions around the world go back to the image of the mother-son. Well, when Shem got wind of this, according to some traditions, he had Nimrod killed. And he had his body cut up in pieces and sent around to the different peoples uh, around uh, the world which was gathered into that small area at the time. And this would have been probably after the Tower of Babel. And to show them the consequences of men turning against God, men who weren't that far separated from the flood story. And so as a result, his mother who survived saw an opportunity uh, with Nimrod's death to 
portray him as a god, the god, a god in the form of a human child, and that she being the mother was the mother of God. And so from that you get this imagery of a mother or a Madonna with a small baby or a god. And we see that perpetrated across the world uh, in ancient Egypt, ancient China, ancient Babylon. You know, the Queen of Heaven is mentioned in the uh, Old Testament prophets. Tammuz, who would be the child deity, uh, is mentioned in the Old Testament. There's references to Ninus in ancient uh, pagan uh, mythology. Ninus is Nimrod. Rhea is a reference to Semiramis. Bel is a reference to Cush. And as a result, this false lie has been propagated all around the world, even to the point that it's been embraced by the Catholic Church in the position which they've elevated Mary and their focus upon the Christ child versus upon the Christ King. And so all false religion goes back to a single source, and it goes back to the place of confusion. And that's what false religion is. It's confusion. So it wasn't Cush that was killed by Shem. It was actually Nimrod. And again, that's according to a lot of ancient sources, some of them church fathers, some of them pagan histories. And you can read these things and you can know the people that are being talked about based upon location, the biblical testimony. And that book, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop, I think it was written in the 1800s, has a lot of good information and you can see proof of this in some ancient inscriptions and portrayals of, of pagan deities. It's a very hard read though. It's an academic read. It's not an enjoyable read. But I just wanted to uh, clarify that. Uh, sometimes with a lot of facts you get mixed up. And so regardless, the Euphrates is a place where rebellion against God happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's a place where rebellion against God happened again um, after the flood. And it's a place where men turned to worship devils. In the book of Revelation, it's a place where the devils they worship come forward to slaughter them. So it's a sad testimony that you can worship Satan, you can adore him, you can sell your soul to him in return for all sorts of promises and prosperity, but it's all temporary. And in the end, Satan will betray you. In the end, the devils will betray you. There is no allegiance. There is no loyalty. And it's foolishness to worship Him. But anyway, that just gives you a little clarification there. Let's turn back to Revelation 9. I want to finish this chapter for sure today. And then we'll look at chapter 10. We ended last week with the last two verses of the chapter, which are, in my opinion, a very sad, sad testimony to the depravity of man. And when we look at Scripture and we look at the different dispensations, a dispensation is a stewardship that God gives to men based upon their revelation that they have received. In the Garden of Eden, we had a, we had a dispensation of innocence. Adam and Eve stood before God in their innocence and their stewardship in that dispensation was to care for God's creation in such a way that it brought glory to Him. God dealt with Adam and Eve according to their innocence. After sin came into the world, 
we passed into a dispensation of conscience. God dealt with man according to their conscience. Once sin had come into the world and there was a knowledge of good and evil, the conscience was awakened. And men were responsible to serve the Lord according to their conscience. And the, what they did is they, they, they made um, provision for their sin through sacrifice. We see that with Cain and Abel. And according to the way God laid it down, Cain was rebellious and wanted to do it on his own terms. And you don't come to God on your own terms. And then as we move through history, God reveals more and more of Himself. Under Noah and the Noahic covenant, we pass into a dispensation of, of human government. Through government and laws that were established, according to God's law, men were to, have, uh, were to exercise themselves and were held accountable for those things. God gave Noah the law of capital punishment. If somebody sheds blood, their blood will be shed as a testimony to the heinous crime of killing someone in which God's image had been uh, made, someone in whom the image of God uh, uh, was found. And then we progress on through the dispensation of the law, and then we get into the times of the church, the dispensation of God's grace. God deals with men according to His grace and mercy as revealed in Jesus Christ. And we have certain stewardships that God requires of us based on that revelation. And then we all the way get down to, you know, we have the dispensation of the kingdom in which men's relationship with God is uh, by way of Jesus Christ's literal reign and authority on this earth. And the common thread throughout all of God's dealing with men is the only way we're right with Him is through faith. It's never of works. It's through faith and trust in the words God has spoken. And so whether it's today in a state of grace where we have the gospel looking back on Jesus Christ, or whether it's way back in the days of Israel when they had the law, the law showed them their sin and by faith they look forward to a Messiah. So it doesn't matter what state man is in, whether it's innocence under the... Um, uh, under the rule of conscience or under the authority of human government or under the law or under grace or in the kingdom, it doesn't matter. The only way to be right with God has always been faith. A Jew is not saved any different than a Gentile. There are promises made to the nation of Israel uh, that will be fulfilled to them nationally. But to be right with God has always been by faith. Whether it's Adam, Abel, King David, the disciples or the Gentile believers. And what the dispensations of God's dealing with man throughout history also demonstrate is that it doesn't matter what man's state is, his nature is always to rebel against God. Whether it's in the garden, where everything is perfect, or whether it's in the kingdom when Jesus Christ rules with an iron fist, where the consequences for breaking the law are clearly known, men will still rebel. They rebel and try to overthrow Him in the end and there's not even a battle. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys them in the camp. Whether it's today in a state of grace when God has offered us His salvation as a free gift, man will rebel. To be right with God is by grace through faith. Always has been, always will be. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. Always has been and always will be. And it's a more atrocious fact when we see 
The more God reveals to us, the more heinous man's rebellion is. That's why Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And much has been given to us. We don't have excuses. God says in the book of Acts, when Paul is preaching that in times past, God winked at men's idolatry, but now He's calling men everywhere to repent. And so, we don't have any excuse. Less excuse than the people of, in my opinion, of Noah's day or Abraham's day. The last two verses of the chapter and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Okay, we talked about this last week. Despite all of these judgments, in all of the seal judgments to this point, all of the trumpet judgments and those plagues to this point, man remains unrepentant and he continues in his idolatry. He continues to worship the very devils that have tormented and slaughtered him. Absolute foolishness. Absolute foolishness. Idols that can neither see nor hear or walk. Devils that cannot create but can only destroy. You know, I've heard Vishnu say it many times when he preaches in Nepal to the Hindus that look, you know that your gods exist to destroy you and everything you do is to appease them and to hope that they won't turn their anger on you. This God we preach, this Potameswar, this Creator, doesn't exist to destroy you. He exists to save you. And that's so profoundly opposite of what they're taught in their Hindu teachings. Superstition is of the devil. And superstition, unfortunately, reigns in our churches today. Most of Roman Catholicism is superstition. A lot of churchianity today is superstition. That's a characteristic of idolatry. Praise the Lord that our God doesn't exist to destroy us. Yes, He judges sin, but He doesn't do it without making a way for us to be saved. Continued idolatry. Shameful. Shameful. But I want to focus on 21. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Not only continued idolatry, but continued immorality. Men love their sin so much that in the face of God's judgment and the slaughter of a hellish army, they will continue in it. In these days of judgment and wrath, they'll still find time to murder. They'll still find time to commit sorcery and use drugs. They'll still find time for fornication and to to steal. Those four sins will characterize the last days. And they are highlighted above all else. In fact, I believe those four sins within them are the pinnacle of rebellion when it comes to man's relationship with man. Idolatry is the pinnacle of man's rebellion when it, becomes his, when it comes to his relationship with God. Murder, adultery, or, or murder, murder, fornication, sorcery, or drug use, and thefts, that's the pinnacle of man's rebellion when it comes to his relationship uh, with other men. Murders, we know what that means. These four sins are grouped together because they are equal, of, of equal footing. Fornication is just as wicked as murder. 
as is stealing, as is sorcery. The word sorcery, murder is self-explanatory. Abortion is murder. That includes the unborn. Wicked. Abortion is murder. No excuse for it. The victim is not the woman who aborts her child. The victim is the baby. Okay? The murderer is the doctor and the woman who takes the, ba the baby in there to murder her. I make no apology for that. It's the truth. And if you're listening to this um, podcast and that offends you, uh, good. If the shoe fits, wear it, and I hope it hurts. Sorceries comes from the Greek word pharmakeia, from which we get our English word pharmacy. So sorcery is linked to drugs. That's etymology. That's word study right there. There is no argument. Pharmacy has a, pharmakeia has a positive sense. Drugs can be positive. They can treat our sicknesses. But when we become dependent upon them or when we use them for reasons other than what they are meant for, it becomes sorcery. Pharmakeia. There is a connection between drug use and the spiritual spirit world. That's why we use the word sorcery. There's a connection between drug use and witchcraft. It's always been that way. We may not think that in our advanced American society, but you talk to people engaged in idol worship and devil worship around the world, the Hindu sadhus, the Hindu holy men, and ask them why they smoke the ganja. They don't smoke it to get high. They smoke it to commune with the spirit world. Ask people who have been addicted to drugs, hard drugs, and have been delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. What happened during those times of, of drug use? The things they saw. Drug use is so common today. Not just illegal drugs, but medicines. And they're used to escape. To escape this world and to peer into another world. Anything we use to escape... the life God has called us to is dangerous. It's dangerous. Whether that be drugs, video games, sports, if anything has any type of command over us to where we have to have it, we're in trouble. Anything is sin if it has to be engaged in. For some Christians to watch a basketball game is sin. For some Christians to follow a sports team is sin. For some Christians to play video games is sin because it consumes them. Paul said, let all things be done in moderation. And that's the sin of drug use. It sucks you in and you can't escape. It's dangerous because it's linked to witchcraft and sorcery. It's a way to give oneself over to demons and devils. Let's talk for a minute about pot, marijuana, marijuana, the way the Nepalis try to pronounce it in English. Pot, harmless, they say. In our society today, it's been legalized. There are places now in Colorado where there, you can get pot from vending machines. Okay, I read an article recently uh, promoting a new brand or stream of marijuana called Skinny Girl Marijuana. 
It's been altered in such a way that where you can supposedly smoke it, but it won't give you the munchies. And therefore, you won't eat so much and you'll be able to stay skinny and won't get fat. That's the thinking there. Skinny girl marijuana. It's in vogue. Some people say, God created it. It can't be bad. If God created it, we should smoke it. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, the foolishness of that thinking is God created poison ivy. We don't make a soap out of it. God created the stinging nettle. And you ask any Nepali, it would be foolish to dive into it or to use it to make clothes. Okay? In fact, stinging nettle is, is a very little tiny briars that you can barely see. And when you touch it, they get into your skin and they burn and it just won't go away and it itches. And the Nepalis in the village used to use that as a form of discipline. If their children would misbehave, they would break off a branch of this stinging nettle and they would slap them with it. Now, it wouldn't hardly hurt because it was leaves, but the stinging nettles would get in their rear end and it would burn like fire. And if a man was a village drunk or caused problems, the, the, the village people would take him out and just throw him down in a patch of stinging nettle. That would be the torture. No Nepali would argue that stinging nettle is just because God made it that it's a good thing to jump in it or to make clothes from it. Now they are able to eat some forms of that and it makes for good food. God made a lot of things that were meant for specific uses. He made a lot of trees and a lot of plants doesn't mean we smoke them. Go ahead and smoke something just because God created it in the plant world. And a lot of it will probably kill you or, or have all kinds of, of terrible effects. So that's a ridiculous argument. Some say that the anointing oil in Exodus 30 meant for the priests contained cannabis or marijuana. Not in the, uh, the, uh, the anointing oil. Some would say the incense. And so it would go off in the temple and they would get high and do their duty. That's a foolish Stupid interpretation by stupid little children that call themselves Christians in America that want to justify the sin of the days. You cannot make that argument etymologically. You cannot make it historically. The cannabis plant does not grow in, in Israel. Okay, What God told them to make was available for them to make it. The word used there in Exodus 30 is the calamus plant. It's not the cannabis plant. It's amazing how people twist the Scripture to their own destructions. Marijuana is a dangerous gateway drug. Okay, It might be harmless per se when compared to the effects or the immediate effects of heroin and cocaine, but its danger is that it's a gateway. Okay, Just like the danger of internet pornography, it is a gateway. Ask Ted Bundy where he got started. It's a gateway. And when we go through a gateway that leads to broad and more serious sin, we are putting ourselves in a place of danger. And that's the problem with marijuana. It's a gateway to more drugs. It is a gateway to the spirit world. Ask the Hindu sadhus who've been smoking it for centuries why they do it. Go to a Hindu religious festival, Shivaratri, where they're worshiping Shiva the devil. And what are the people doing? To worship him, smoking marijuana. The, 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 the cloud is so thick in the Pashtapatinath temple on that day that you literally get high walking through there. Okay, we went through there to distribute tracts, and the thick haze of the pot was everywhere. 
It's done to open a gateway to the spirit world. The sadhus have been smoking the ganja long before Whitey even knew what it was. Whitey's not an expert. Marijuana has more toxins than tobacco. Everybody decries the terrible use of tobacco in our society and want to say that marijuana's harmless. Foolishness, confusion of face. The worst thing about marijuana, in my opinion, the worst thing about it is it makes you think you're brilliant when you're not. And when people who are not brilliant think they're brilliant, they're a danger to themselves and a danger to others. And they're fools that walk down a broad path that leads to destruction. Marijuana is a gateway drug. Drugs are a door to the spirit world. And in God's eyes, smoking marijuana, using drugs is sorcery. It's witchcraft. You need to repent. Those that are in bondage to drugs and claim to be believers, and there's no will, there's no effort, there's no fruit in terms of coming out of it, they're under the influence of devils, not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Don't tell me you're a believer and you go to rehab and you talk all the right talk and you come out and you come to church a couple times and then you're right back into drugs. You're under the influence of devils because you're walking in the spirit world. You need to understand your problem and repent of the source and not the symptom. And therein lies the key to being free. Okay? Drug use is connected to witchcraft. It's sorcery. They go hand in hand together. The problem here in America is we're too foolish to even see it. Whereas people around the world, third world countries that use it for religious purposes, know exactly what it is. Drug use, murder, sorcery will characterize the times of which we're speaking. Fornication! Men would not repent of their fornication. Fornication comes from the word porneia, from where we get pornography or porn. Okay? Fornication is not adultery, but adultery is fornication. Do you understand that? When the word fornication is used in the New Testament, it's not talking about adultery. But when adultery is spoken of, it's a type of fornication. Fornication is bigger than adultery. Okay? Bigger than that. Fornication is sexual sin. It can take many forms. Adultery, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality is fornication, bestiality is fornication, unrestrained lust is fornication, looking at pornography is fornication, lusting in our heart after someone that's not ours is adultery, is fornication. Okay? And the Bible says that we are to flee fornication. Okay? Sexual sin will rule the day just as it does today. Everything in our society here in America is about sex. Everything in the homosexual lifestyle is about sex. You can't, a homosexual cannot have a conversation about his identity. Or promote his identity unless it's tied to some form of sex um, or debauchery, sexual debauchery. It's all about that. These people don't desire to get married so they can have a committed relationship. Committed monogamous relationship and homosexuality don't go together. That's an oxymoron. 
It's all about we want to do whatever we want to do. We want to sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. And you have to be the same way. Porneia. Sexual sin will still rule the day in these times, just as it is, does today in America, in a society where most of us think there's nothing wrong with this. Most people think, and many that call themselves Christians, that there's nothing wrong with adultery if God puts two people together. People think there's nothing wrong with homosexuality or what the Bible calls sodomy, sodomites. If two people love each other. Nothing wrong with sex outside of marriage. I would say that probably 90% of youth in Christian churches have sex outside of marriage. What do these things lead to? When they run rampant in a society, they lead to rape, they lead to incest, bestiality, unrestrained lust, what the Bible calls concupiscence. Romans chapter 1, I'm sick and tired of hearing people say Jesus never addressed the sin of homosexuality. That's a lie. Homosexuality is a 20th century English word that pays tribute to evolution. The word homosexual and heterosexual by nature presuppose an evolutionary source of all things. I don't think we should even use those words. Sodomy is what the Bible calls it. Filthiness. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1 as vile affection against nature, lust, and unseemly. But Jesus addressed it when He used the word fornication in the New Testament. He addressed it very clearly. And besides, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, according to what Jesus Christ Himself prophesied to His disciples, and according to the witness of the Scriptures, and the inspiration of the Scriptures, and the role of the Holy Ghost in giving the Scriptures, is Jesus speaking about homosexuality. Any Christian that rejects the epistles in favor of the Gospels is off base and needs to repent. The Bible says at the end of Romans, when describing how women lying with women and men burning in their lust one for another, that's kind of the pinnacle of a society, rebellion against God. And at the very end of the chapter, it says that they receive um, the recompense of their error, which was meat. Recompense is the just deserts. You do these things, you receive the reward of your error. And that reward is meat, or it's deserved. What is the ultimate recompense for such filthiness? The things we're reading about right here in Revelation. Infernal torment. Infernal destruction. These judgments, the fifth and sixth trumpets that involve devils, are recompense to the unrepentant. Recompense to the unrepentant idolaters. Recompense from God to the unrepentant drug users and sorcerers. Recompense from God for the unrepentant sexual sinners and homosexuals. Homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, pornographers need to repent and turn from their wicked ways and be saved. You don't have Christ come into your life and continue to live in these things and consider them to be okay. And the wretchedness of homosexuality is not that other sins are less dangerous or other sins have less consequences. Sin is what condemns us to hell. The sin of lying makes us just as much deserving of hell as the sin of murder. But homosexuality is an identification. 
It's an identification by its nature that says, I am this way and it's okay and God says it's okay. So it's not only a sexual sin, it's idolatry because you've forced, you've created a God that doesn't exist and you worship Him over the God that made you and you identify with sin. The Bible says, woe unto those that call evil good and good evil. If you're a homosexual and you claim the name of Christ, or if you're a Christian teacher and you affirm that homosexuality is okay within a Christian lifestyle, then woe unto you. Woe unto you. They didn't repent of their murder, their sorcery, their fornication, nor of their thefts. There's two types of theft. They're stealing. Stealing is when it's done without violence, secret. There's robbery. Robbery is when you steal and it's accompanied with violence. If someone breaks into a house and beats up the owner and leaves him bloody and bleeding or hurt and then takes his things, that's robbery. If someone sneaks into the house at night when the owners are away and takes some things, that's stealing. But it's all theft. And when theft is con- where theft is concerned, you cannot truly repent for thievery. You can't ever really make it right without paying back the one from whom you stole or at least making an effort to do so. To me, if you've stolen from somebody, unless that person openly forgives that debt, you're never making it right until you restore what you've stolen. And that goes for Christians. I don't care if it was before you were saved. I don't care if it was something you didn't mean to do. I never meant to is not repentance. I had to listen to that garbage last night on a telephone call from somebody that I thought uh, was, had a clear understanding of, of biblical things. I am sick and tired of Christians in sin, confronted by their sin, not responding with, I'm sorry, or please forgive me, but responding with, I never meant to, I never intended to. So if you took it that way, the problem's yours. Wicked. I'm sick of it. And we've seen that here in this church with with folks. And I'm not talking about anybody that's related to this church. If you've stolen something, you need to make it right. And you may just at least make an effort. You may not be able to pay it back or the person may not want it back, but make an effort to be truly right and to be freed of that. You know, thievery is not just stealing goods. It's, just not, it's not just robbing goods. It involves stealing glory meant for God. Jesus talks about a special type of thievery that men are guilty of today, not only in society, but in our churches. Turn to John 10. John 10. Verse 1. This is Jesus' discourse on the Good Shepherd. Okay? This is right before Jesus goes to Lazarus, raises him from the dead. It's before Jesus goes down to Jerusalem during the Feast of Hanukkah to preach. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief 
and a robber. Verse 7, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep, the sheep are those that God purposed from the foundation of the world to save, did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life, and they may have it abundantly. Thieves and robbers are those that deny Christ and attempt to come into the kingdom of God some other way. Those that preach another way into a relationship with God other than the door are thieves and robbers. And those thieves and robbers, a.k.a. TV preachers, a.k.a. preachers like this foolish man that calls himself a pastor in Tennessee that says a divine wind told him that homosexuals should be given positions of leadership in the church and should be welcomed just like anyone else and that it's not sin. People like this are thieves and robbers. They come to steal, to kill, and to destroy the spirits of men and to lead them astray. Just like Cush and Nimrod. That pastor in Tennessee is more like Nimrod than he is Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're supposed to reflect Christ. A thief and a robber, an ultimate thief and a robber is one who tries to lead men to good, to righteousness or the kingdom of God some other way besides Jesus Christ. A gospel of works is thievery and robbery. It robs God of His glory. Okay? There's a lot of thievery and robbery in the church. And there'll be a lot of that thievery and robbery in these days of tribulation, despite God's judgments. The Antichrist is the ultimate thief. The Antichrist, the one that comes, the man of sin, is the ultimate thief. He sets himself up as God and men follow him instead of walking through the door. Jesus Christ is the door of the sheep. You, do not, you are not saved unless you go through the door. You don't climb the wall. You don't breach the fence. You go through the door or you're not saved. Period. I am the door, Jesus said. There is no other way. These four sins characterize American society today and sadly they plague our churches. Yet much of this we don't even consider to be sin. Much of it is called good. Let's look at Isaiah 5 for a minute. I made reference to this. Isaiah 5 take, you know, is written before Isaiah 6. And Isaiah's, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, when he comes into the presence of God in chapter 6, is in view of what is revealed in chapter 5. And what is revealed in chapter 5 is Israel and Judah as God sees them as opposed to how they see themselves. What's revealed is God's view of a nation that has been blessed by Him, but yet has turned its back on Him. So I believe Isaiah 5 is a view of America from God's perspective. The Bible says the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning upon whom the ends of the world come. But in this chapter, chapter 5, God 
gives a parable of a vineyard in which he plants a vineyard and does everything to make it prosperous, but instead of bringing forth grapes, it brings forth wild grapes. And so the rhetorical question is, what more could I have done? This thing's not going to bear fruit, so I'm better off just tearing it down. And that's a picture of Israel. I've done all of this for Israel. Given her all of this. Blessed her, revealed myself to her, made provision for her. And this is how she repays me. And then in verse 8 to the end of the chapter, we have six woes placed upon Israel. In verse 8, woe to them that hoard things. Hoarders. Those that join house to house, lay field to field till there's no place. Those that find peace in things, in the accumulation of things. Woe unto them, God says. America is a nation of hoarders that measures success by things. He who has the most toys when he dies wins. Woe unto them. Verse 11, woe unto partiers. Those that get up early in the morning, they follow strong drink, they continue through night, they play and they celebrate and they regard not the work of the Lord. Neither consider the operation of His hands. Woe unto a nation of partiers. America is a nation of partiers. Go to verse 18, the third woe. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart rope. In other words, they parade their sin. Open, not even ashamed of it. Woe unto the mockers. Fools make a mock at sin. Okay? America is a nation where men don't just sin, they parade it and they openly do it and they want everybody to be just like them. Verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Reprobates. America's a, a nation of reprobates. What God calls good, righteousness, justice, peace, prayer, the gospel, humility, Self-sacrifice, service, we view these as weak and evil. What God calls evil, abortion, murder, homosexuality, sexual sin, idolatry, false religion, we say is good. The Bible believer, the Bible prayer, these things are evil, but all of this other debauchery is good. That's the perspective of American society. Mockers, reprobates, call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Prideful nation, woe unto a prideful nation. Israel was prideful in that day. America is prideful today. Verse 22, the sixth and final woe, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Woe to an unjust people who lift up, compliment, support, promote the wicked for their own gain, and yet persecute and take away the righteousness of the righteous. The men put on pedestals in our government, the men put on pedestals in ministry and on the television are wicked. And the ones that are truly righteous, the ones that want to follow the Lord in simplicity and to point others to Jesus Christ and to faithfully share the gospel are considered evil. 
and they're persecuted by people most of the time that claim the name of Christ. Unjust. God is very clear here. Woe unto nations characterized by hoarding, partying, mocking, reprobateness or reprobation, pride and unjust. Unjustness. That's America. Those are the last days. And God says, woe. Woe. Well, the sixth trumpet is a woe. The fifth trumpet is a woe. Three woes are coming. Two of them at the hands of devils and the last one at the hands of God Himself. Woe is coming. And the woe pronounced by Isaiah or by God through Isaiah the prophet in chapter 5 is coming to pass in these chapters in Revelation. All of this, all of these warnings, all of these judgments capped by unrepentance. An astounding picture of human depravity. I don't know how else to describe it. An astounding picture of human depravity. Those that think men are basically good are fools. They're blind. And they don't interact with human society too much if they really, really believe that. Men are not by nature good. By nature they are unrepentant and rebellious. Even in hell, even in the lake of fire, you think men will be begging for God's mercy? Pleading, I'm sorry God, repentant? No. Even uh, the rich man that went to hell was not repentant. He just wanted relief. He wasn't humble. He just wanted relief. He did want to warn his brethren, but there was no sense of humility or giving God glory. You think there will be repentance in hell? No. The Bible says there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. What is gnashing? Gnashing is to grind your teeth in anger. Gnashing is related to anger. There'll be a lot of, I won't even say it, probably what will be said in hell toward God and toward the righteous. Unrepentance, even in the flames. What does unrepentance look like in our lives? We need to be careful of it in the lives of others. What does it look like? Romans 1 Actually, a few verses along the Romans road tells us exactly what unrepentance looks like. I think these two verses in Revelation are worth an entire sermon, to be honest with you. They have a lot to tell us. Turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 32. Uh, Jason, would you read that for us this morning? Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. What does unrepentance look like? Unrepentance is knowing the judgment of God, knowing the view of God about your sin, and that it deserves punishment, and you continue to do it anyway. And you don't just do it, you take pleasure in doing it. That's unrepentance. That's the lost man's attitude towards sin. If you go over to Romans 7, 
Paul is talking about the war in the flesh or his war between his spirit and his flesh. The thing we've all tasted in our walk with Christ. Some say that Paul is talking about himself before he was saved, but that is foolishness. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Romans 7 is the attitude of the saved man towards sin. He delights inwardly after the law of God and therefore hates his sin. Go to the end of Romans 1. That's the attitude of a lost man. You've got a person claiming the name of Jesus that is in sin, continues in sin, and takes pleasure in his sin. I don't care what he says. Actions speak louder than words. I made that comment very bluntly last night in a telephone call. Actions speak louder than words. And it was met with silence. Don't tell me you're a Christian and you live in sin and take pleasure in it. That is the mark of unrepentance. And salvation is by repentance unto God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of us who are saved and struggle in sin, delighting after the law of God, we need to repent of our sin. We need to take it before the Lord and repent of it. A homosexual doesn't do that because by nature he identifies with his sin and takes pleasure in it. That is the attitude of what's described here in Romans 1.32 and Paul uses that as an example of such sin. Big difference. Biblical unrepentance that results in eternal damnation looks like what's described right there in verse 32. Turn to Romans 3. Romans 3 gives us a good picture of the depravity of man. Um, Ronnie, would you read Romans 3 verses 10 through 20? Guys, this is the depravity of man. We say man's basically good. This is what God says. As it is written, there is none righteous, none not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open scepter. With their tongues they have used deceit, and the poison of ass is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall, be, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. This is mankind as God sees it. Not only do these verses reveal the depravity of man, they reveal to us the purpose of God's law. God's law was not given to make us right. It was given to show us our sin, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. By the law, by works is not salvation. It's the knowledge of sin. And unfortunately, many don't even have the knowledge of sin. They think that what they do is okay because their conscience is seared with a hot iron. This is us. This is you, children. You're not born innocent. You're not born 
without sin, you're born with sin. That's why when you get to an age where you know the difference between right and wrong, God calls you to repent. Okay, God's grace covers those who have not the knowledge of right and wrong. That's seen at the end of the book of Jonah. When Jonah wants God to pour down wrath on the city of Nineveh, and God's like, how many people are in that city that don't even know the difference between their right and their left, and you want me to just destroy it? Kind of an interesting story there at the end of the book we don't ever really read or study. But this is the depravity of man. This is what God says. And unless we repent and acknowledge our guilt as revealed in the law of God on our conscience and in the Ten Commandments and in the Word of God, we can't be saved. We can't be saved. But, praise God, after this condemnation, this final verdict, what does it then go on to say, verse 21? But, by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by works, by the law? No! Which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all, Jew and Gentile, and upon all, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Catholic, Christian, atheist, that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Man is depraved. The law of God reveals our sin and makes us guilty. But praise God, unlike man-made religion, God doesn't ask for appeasement. God doesn't ask for ritual or superstition. God doesn't ask. He did. Not do but done. The righteousness of God without the law, witnessed by the law and the prophets, even in the Old Testament law, the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. To believe is to acknowledge and to trust. If we'll acknowledge our sin before God and we'll place our trust in the redemption of Jesus Christ, the Bible says God will justify us freely and He will not count us with the depraved, but count our faith as righteousness. Even as Abraham believed and trusted God, the Bible says God counted his faith as righteousness because of what Jesus Christ would do from his perspective and what he has done from our perspective. That's good news. The, 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 the most amazing part of that entire few verses is that word freely. Freely. A free gift. But man's so rebellious, he won't receive it. He's so prideful, he won't receive it. Even those that say, I'm so wicked, there's nothing I could ever do to make it right. That's, that's pride and rebellion too. God's done it. No matter what your sin, no matter how heinous your crimes, you can be justified freely. And to say you're not worthy and to refuse salvation because you think you're too sinful to receive it is just as prideful as those that say, to ref of, of those that refuse salvation because they say they don't need it. It's the same pride and rebellion. But praise God, we can be justified freely. Praise God for judgment. Praise God for righteousness. Such are the trumpet judgments. Such is what they can teach us.
So, that's the end of the six trumpet judgments. The end of chapter 9. Notice what's not at the end of chapter 9. Okay? At the end of chapter 8, we had the fourth trumpet. And we were told after the fourth trumpet, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the trumpets of the three angels which are yet to sound. Then we had the fifth trumpet. The demonic locust plague. Infernal torment. At the end of that trumpet, one woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. And then we read about the sixth trumpet. And we get to the end of chapter 9, but it doesn't say the second woe is past and a third woe is coming. In fact, it doesn't refer to the passing of the second woe until the end of chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, the second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Okay, so the sixth trumpet judgment is not finished per se in terms of chronology. The main part of it is this army, this fiery cavalry from hell or from Tartarus, but it includes a few other things. And it's timed with the end of the ministry of God's two special witnesses. It's timed with their resurrection, their rapture, and the earthquake that follows. But at the end of chapter 9, we enter into a parenthesis, just like chapter 7, in which there's a pause. doesn't advance the narrative, but it discusses things going on behind the scenes, particularly with regard to God's witness. Even in these terrible, horrible days, God does not leave Himself without witness. We saw that in the first parenthesis, Revelation 7, was all about testimony to the truth. God's sealing of the 144,000 Jews and their Gentile converts. Now we're going to pause in Revelation again and be reminded that in the midst of all of this, God still hasn't left Himself without witness. And we're going to see the witness not only of prophecy, that would be given down throughout the ages, warning us of these days, but also in the testimony of two special witnesses. And so I look forward greatly um, to getting into this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and I'll explain that when we get there. But take this outline this week. You can use this as a study guide. It'll bring you through the end of chapter 11. So this will cover chapter 10 and chapter 11. And just kind of focus on the first part here kind of an introduction. I think it's amazing how Revelation is laid out orderly. It's not random. And how these parentheses that we see that give background information are emphasizing a common and important truth. God never leaves Himself without witness. Even in days of pagan idolatry, God gives witness of Himself. I want to conclude with one verse. And this will end with this. Turn to Acts. And I'll let this be an introduction to our discussion of chapter 10 and chapter 11. Acts chapter 14, Paul is preaching in Iconium. Okay? His preaching angered some people. Actually, he's, gone, he's preached in Iconium and uh, 
Let's see, we're going to be in Acts 14, 16, and 17. He's preached in Iconium, and they got angry and drove them out of the city and tried to stone them. This is in Paul's first missionary journey with um, Barnabas. Then they go to Derby and Lystra, and they preach the gospel. An impotent man is healed. Um, they tried to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods when this happened. And Paul and Barnabas rent their clothes and ran among the people crying, Why do you do these things? We are just men. Turn from these vanities unto God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things therein. And then look at verse 16. Who in times past suffered or allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. You see, God, even in days when nations are completely bent on idolatry, completely bent on sin, still leaves a witness. Rain, fruitful seasons, God's mercy reigns on the just and the unjust. And He gives a witness. Even in these days of tribulation, we're going to, we've already seen in chapter 7, we're going to see in 10 and 11 that He continues to leave witness. And there will be those that repent and save, be saved. They'll pay for it with their lives. But God, until the end, does not leave Himself without witness. Praise the Lord for that. If God had left Himself without witness, I would never have known Him. If God had left Himself without witness, we'd all be lost and deserving of judgment. And God would still be righteous. But He's a merciful God. Praise God for the witness He gives us in His Word. And may we be His witnesses. You know, in light of these stern, hard truths, we shouldn't despise and disdain men and have an attitude like, well, go on to hell, I don't care. No. In view of this truth, it ought to compel us to be witnesses and a testimony that men might escape. And love them enough to tell them the truth. I don't hate homosexuals. I want them to see the truth. I, dis I disdain a blindness and a rebellion that leads men into damnation. But oh, that they would hear the truth and believe and that we would love them enough to tell them the truth, not just what they want to hear. Homosexual would be welcome to enter the doors of this church and they'll go hear the truth in the gospel. You're not welcome to become a member of this church unless you're born again. The church is for believers, it's not for unbelievers. Those that are living in sin and unrepentant, in my opinion, don't know salvation and therefore can't be a part of a church. A biblical definition of a church is a gathering of saved people. You, can't, you can be a member of a church, but you're not a member of the church unless you're saved. And God's definition of a church is what matters. Anybody can walk in this door and hear the gospel, but only those that follow Jesus Christ are part of us and become part of that body and become part of the ministry to invite anything beyond that or to even have a ministry of trying to recruit people to come to your church so you can build up attendance and increase the offering is not biblical strategy it's not biblical simplicity it's worldly and it's man-centered the church should not be in the recruiting business 
The church should not be in the growing attendance business other than motivated by seeing people saved. If you're motivated to bring people in your church for any other reason than to see men saved and escape the horrible judgments revealed here, you are off base and you need to repent. Church growth is God's problem. What we've been called to do is exhort one another, teach one another, edify one another, and go out to preach the gospel. All right, I'll shut up.